Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. Welcome to the 51st episode of Get Off My World, a podcast about all things Doctor Who. I'm Pat. I'm Kelvin. I'm... Wait! I have something to say. I, I have to apologize. Um, there has been a timeline anomaly. I have gone back in time a few decades to adjust just a few things with Richard Nixon and his Southern strategy. I thought I could nip a few political things in the bud. But the long and the short of it is... There is no Joshua Scrimshaw anymore. Uh, he is now and has always been Scott Glancy. Hi, Scott. Hi. Thank you it, for being our co-host it, for almost three years now. It's been a, a pleasure, absolutely. Um, you didn't muck up anything else besides Mr. Scrimshaw, did you? I mean, I couldn't notice how the um, <clears throat> the last election went. That isn't something else that's a result of your... Um, well, it's the law of unintended consequences, as you know. I think we'll try again, maybe, you know, after, yeah. you know, maybe next weekend once we're done editing mm -hmm. this podcast, but uh, we'll see. But in the meantime, we soldier on. And as our longtime listeners know, we always start our five rounds rapid with something we like to call temporal grace, because we sometimes get a little spiky and irritable about things, Doctor Who. So we like to start the situation with something that we like and enjoy about the universe of Doctor Who. So, Josh, uh, I'm sorry, Scott, uh, would you like to start us this week? It, it, I realize how difficult it is to tell us apart, especially in the middle of this temporal anomaly. Um, the timelines haven't quite crystallized yet. It's a little. I'm sure my memories of Joshua, whoever that is, will fade. Much like Marty McFly. He'll, he'll just become transparent after a while. Disappear from all the photographs. We can only hope. I, <laughs> I think that uh, I'm going to say that my moment of temporal grace is oddly related to the uh, solo play adventure for the uh, the Death Zone. Oh, you're skipping ahead to round five. T more time anomalies. At the back of Doctor Who and the Rebels Gambit is actually an advertisement for Doctor Who miniatures. Two pages in. Doctor Who miniatures that were produced by uh, FASA. And I looked them up on uh, a website. That is the uh, the Lost Minis Wiki that uh, will help you track down miniatures that have come and gone. Wow. I was rather shocked to find out that Doctor Who miniatures have been produced since the early 80s. Uh, there was one from yep. Hero Miniatures that they don't even know the, the date of, but uh, Doctor Who's first miniatures were in 1984 before these 1986 castings came out from Raffam, uh, which is a company that's still around. Uh, and still does uh, Call of Cthulhu miniatures, which is where I know them from. It's where I picked up all my Call of Cthulhu miniatures. But there have been uh, sets of miniatures produced uh, in 84, 86, 96, 2001, 2007, 2008, 2014. And now Warlord Games is producing a series of Doctor Who miniatures. They're actually part of an actual game game. They're like game pieces in a, a tactical game, which I got to say, to me, flies in the face of all things Doctor Yeah, produced it to a tactical war game where you're going to, I don't know, fight Silurians against Daleks or something. I don't know. But um, these early ones, the face of ones, the ones from uh, Harlequin, Citadel, these are all really early Doctor Whos. And it, it got me looking around at other Doctor Who miniatures. I just want to call out a couple things on the subject of Doctor Who miniatures. Number one, there's this thing where you can find Doctor Who miniatures that have been, you know, sort of officially made, like the ones from Raffam. And you can find ones that are made officially like from Warlord Games. But there is an enormous amount of completely unauthorized Doctor Who miniatures out there where they will just put different names on the things and then try and, you know, and pass them off. Crooked Dice out of England does all these amazing miniatures of, like, 
Danger Five. Does anyone know Danger Five? Oh, yeah. Five? Oh, yeah. yeah. Danger Five. Does anyone Danger know Five? Danger Five? Do you know who you're talking to, Joshua? <laughs> yeah, well, first of all. Uh, <laughs> but they have the, the dinosaur-headed Nazi soldiers, and they have Tricer. the whole Danger Five team. and um, you know, The Patrick uh, McGowan guy with the bird head. Yeah, Colonel Chesterbridge, of course. <laughs> uh, but these guys also have miniatures for uh, Project UFO, uh, the prisoner. Nice. Uh, oh man! Not just the Magoon outfit, not just the new number two, but like Joe Average villager with those weird holiday outfits they're always wearing in the village. I'm not going to uh, pay 19.95 for a golf ball they call Rover, though. <laughs> no copies of Rover that I've been able to see, but they do I, have uh, Blake seven miniatures with the mm, number nice. with the serial numbers filed off, things like that. I'm assuming uh, these are more for just collectors rather than like for no, they're all 28 millimeter miniatures, which means they're generally designed for yeah. tabletop, either tactical role play or, or, or role playing game. It's rather surprising this, the scale of these things, but uh, their line of minions miniatures looks like every group of thugs that ever menaced the doctor. Their army group is clearly. The Brigadier and the guys from Unit. Without nice. Uh, there's a company called CP Models, which oddly enough has a line of big-eyed aliens that look like the Slitheme. Even weirder, have a number of miniatures based off the plant monster at various stages of growth from the, the Seeds of Doom. Yeah. Oh, the crinoid. But the one I really want to point out is Black Tree Design. Uh, Black Tree Design has a ton of old miniatures of Doctor Who. And they have them going all the way back to the first Doctor. So they have miniatures based on the terrible costumes from the first Doctor. And their website's amazing because it's actually organized by Doctor. You can get Zarby figures? There's actually a Zarby. It is the yes. second miniature page. The Celestial Toymaker is on the page. The Minoptra, Nero, and Vord. <laughs> and, you know, they have this... Amazing collection of bad costumes. There's even a section called Movie Doctor that includes Peter Cushing. But the one that I thought you'd be most amused by uh, is the fact that there's an eighth Doctor. Uh, and a, what was his name? Eric. Oh, Eric Roberts. There's an Eric sure. Roberts pastor. Oh, boy. Well, I know uh, what I need for Christmas, Calvin. <laughs> so there you go. That's that's my uh, that's my temporal grace. Well, it's going to be hard to top, Kelvin. Yeah, it is pretty hard to top, and I don't think mine does, but... Uh, I was just uh, mightily amused to see a clip of Peter Capaldi auditioning to play the part of Benjamin Sisko in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Wow. Whoa. They're, they're going to come up with like uh, some sort of deluxe Blu-ray edition of Deep Space Nine with a whole bunch of extras and includes actors who were auditioning for parts on Deep Space Nine and didn't get them. And one of them was Peter Capaldi. And another one was uh, Anthony Head. He was also auditioning to be uh, Cisco, apparently. You know, just today I saw uh, a clip of Peter Capaldi as George Harrison in a TV movie I called John and Yoko, A Love Story. I recall. I think I recall seeing that TV movie, although I, mm -hmm. at the time I would not have known who Peter Capaldi was, and I sure as heck wouldn't have recognized him uh, with a beetle wig and a fake mustache. Yeah, the mustache <laughs> is pretty remarkable. <laughs> wow. <laughs> So, uh, well, you guys have me beat here this week on Temporal Grace, but um, I just want to share with you, because as I was walking down the street the other day, I, I don't know if you know this, you probably don't know this, but my wife and I have been recently watching the Australian canine TV series. Oh the most remarkable thing about that show is, like, why does it even exist? Most people don't really even know that it does, and when they watch it, they're like, why is this a thing? I don't understand it. But there's something like... 30 episodes of it on the DVD uh, set that we have, and we've been slowly making our way through it for many years. But I made a joke to myself when I was walking down the street that I decided was so obscure and stupid that I could never tell anyone about it because no one would ever get it. No one could possibly <laughs> understand it because no one watches the show. So I guess I'm going to tell it to our listeners. And so listeners, if you understand, I'm not going to tell you the punchline. I'm just going to tell you the setup to the joke. So if you want to email us, I'll send you a prize or something. I don't know. Probably not. But so the joke is here. I thought to myself, self said I. Keegan Joyce's character from the Australian canine TV series really should have been played by Burt Reynolds. <laughs> I, I, I don't quite understand it. I, I, I appreciate it just on the level of absurdity. Burt Reynolds, Kelvin. Yeah. 
That's all, listeners. I, I don't know if there's supposed to be anything more to it than just absurdity. There's a reason. Okay. If anyone can figure it out, please email us at getoffmyworldpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Post it to our Facebook page or tweet us. Uh, and uh, The first person to get that answer in will get a hand-painted Paul McGann doctor miniature from Pat. Exactly right. It's because they were both in Stroker Ace, isn't it? Okay, we're now up to item two on our podcast agenda, and of course our uh, guest Guest? slash replacement Josh uh, is, of course, uh, Mr. Scott Glancy, and I'm sure you all are quite familiar uh, with his amazing body of work, but just in case some of you haven't quite caught up to all of our uh, backlog of episodes yet, I believe it's time to initiate the The Mind mind probe. Probe. Not... The Mind Probe? Yes! Yes, The the Mind mind Probe! probe. (laughs) Well, um, of the parts of me you could have probed, you have picked my second (laughs) favorite body part. (laughs) So, when I'm not co-hosting this show with Pat and Kelvin, I am the the last Legionnaire alive here at uh, Fort Pagan Publishing, which was a tiny little um, publishing company founded by John Tynes uh, when he was in college in 1990 uh, to publish support material for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Mm. So my background comes heavily from role-playing games. I'm still in the business of writing and publishing uh, for role-playing games. We've done uh, a fair amount of stuff for the old Call of Cthulhu game. Uh, We wrote the original material for the Delta Green uh, role-playing game, which is coming out Hopefully uh, next year early. Uh, it used to be a supplement for the original Call of Cthulhu game. Now it is being launched as a standalone role-playing game. And Delta Green is essentially unit, only with more alcoholism and <laughs> self-loathing, yeah. I think, is the best way to describe it. It's the government agency in charge of uh, involved with fending off paranormal and extraterrestrial threats to mankind, perhaps even extra-spatial one might say threats to mankind with a healthy dose of the Lovecraft Cthulhu mythos piled on top of it, uh, where the primary mechanic in the game involves losing your sanity and um, fighting off your losses of sanity by undermining your relationship with your friends and family. (laughs) Actually built in sort of a mechanic into the game where the fact that you have human contact with people like your parents, your brothers, your colleagues, and others, the kind of things that keep you from going buggo in the face of non-terrestrial, non-Euclidean horrors from beyond time and space. So by the end of it, you're, you're kind of like Rustin Cole from the first season of True Detective. You're all by yourself in a storage locker with a crazy wall filled with names and strings connecting all the clues and... That's what you've got to look forward to as an intrepid member of Delta Green protecting humanity. My uh, first contact with uh, Doctor Who was by accident. I was flipping channels one morning uh, before we were supposed to go to church on a Sunday and turned on, since we only had five channels back then, I turned on the PBS affiliate and there was John Pertwee doing I did not know what. I had no idea what John Pertwee was doing. He was dressed strangely with these frilly cuffs and there were these soldiers around him and there was a submarine it was getting attacked and then there were these sea creatures everywhere and they had laser guns and it was awesome (laughs) and uh, i was suddenly introduced to doctor who through the sea devils and that was sort of my first shot at doctor who and i you know can remember my my doctor who was pertwee and and baker those were the doctor who's that i grew up on in the 80s you know and i you know read a lot of those novels uh, as a matter of, in fact preparing for today's show i actually went and picked up from my local video store not just a copy of the talents of wing chang but also a copy of colony in space yeah yep yeah yeah has done have we done colony in space i can't remember we haven't yet we we'll, haven't yet we'll get no. around to it it's one of the first doctor who novels published in america under the name yeah. doctor who and the doomsday machine so yeah. i saw it in walden books back in the day so it was one of the very first ones that i read me too and i remember that title recently going to look up the episode at my uh, store uh, at scarecrow video up here in seattle and as i'm looking around i can't find the doomsday weapon because that's how I remembered it, you know, from yeah. my childhood. It took me a while to figure out, you know, I said, well, I'm just guess I'm going to look at every single Pertwee yeah. title until I find the right one. Um, I've done things like that many a time. <laughs> 
But um, that was my doctor. I got a very little Peter Davidson and did not get much of the rest of the crew before uh, mm-hmm. McGann and before the, the reboot that's come up recently. But anyways, I'm still here at uh, Fabulous Pagan Publishing. We're still working on stuff that's Delta Green related and Call of Cthulhu related, including some horror material that's uh, set during World War One uh, mm-hmm. called Horrors of War. Still working on that. Mm-hmm. It's achingly slowly. But um, Doctor Who, and it's something I want to bring up in the um, uh, special topics day, like Doctor Who was, to me as a kid, actually incredibly terrifying. And there were aspects of that science horror that I think heavily influenced my choices of genres to work in. And that's certainly what the Lovecraft mythos is. It's supernatural and horror stories for people who understand that there's an Einsteinian universe, that perhaps the eschatological universe imagined by uh, Judeo-Christian mythology isn't the real one, that we live in another place that's filled with worse things and other terrors that have to do with math and distance and time. But yeah, the horror aspects of Doctor Who heavily informed my tastes uh, from those early episodes. I mean, it's interesting, Scott, that you would say that because uh, I also grew up watching Doctor Who and reading H.P. Lovecraft and there, there's something synergistic between the two of them, but in a lot of ways, they're incompatible universes, right? Because there's that dark, pitiless, Lovecraftian universe where no human endeavor or striving actually amounts to anything whatsoever. But that's not what Doctor Who is about, really, because that's uh, something that celebrates heroism and individuality and personality and... Not, not unless you accept the conspiracy theory that Doctor Who is, in fact, Naralathotep. <laughs> that, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. Don't ever say that again. That's well, if he was I'm, Merlin at some point, maybe, you know, he could be Naralathotep. And he takes a drink. <laughs> that, I've driven Paul to drink. There you go. Sorry, Pat. I, I just, I'm still stuck I, on Paul again. Everything, you know, our personalities are shifting. Kevin, <laughs> Kevin I don't understand well, what what's going, going on here. I'm the timelines are not aligning properly. I'm a, I'm yeah. a podcaster I, I with a thousand faces. I, don't. I told you not to kill Hitler, but no, this time it's going to work out for sure. Well, uh, okay, so Scott, now that you've undermined everything about our personalities and our, you know, views on the universe and our podcast, uh, we, we, we need to ask you the question that we always ask our Mind Probe guests, which is, if you could choose a rock star or rock band or musician, etc., etc., of any period from 1963 to the present to appear on Doctor Who... Who would it be, and what sort of role would they play? And you can't say David Bowie. Like I'd say David Bowie. What kind of an amateur do you take me for? <laughs> I'm pulled in two directions here. I normally favor anything that has to do with Ward Zevon. Of course. But uh, at the same time, I feel like Tom Waits would have a better <laughs> impact uh, on Doctor. He is a proven commodity in front of the camera yep we did bring him up in in this role before we thought that he would be good as i am foreman the junk man from the very first episode the un an unearthly child who you never see so i think you're on our wavelength joshua mm. well paul um <laughs> Alone, I feel I should. Uh, I feel I should amend my answer to go. No, screw it. It's Warren Zevon. I want Warren Zevon in there instead. Would he appear accidentally Ooh. like a martyr? Would you yeah. find him under the eaves somewhere? I'm thinking that's how he's going to die. Clearly, uh, uh, perhaps. Well, well, don't let him get sick. Don't let him get old. I was going to say perhaps the name of the episode will be Monkey Wash Donkey Rinse, or uh, <laughs> it could take place in the center of the earth. I kind of want Warren Zevon just to be one of those guys who herds the doctor and his companions into a cell and locks him in, you know, <laughs> just one of those bored minions doing his job. And he's just like, you know, you've got to let us out. You know, if you don't, the doctor can't save us from the autons. And he just kind of goes, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's you know. wearing his, you know, plastic garbage bag, futuristic uniform thing. and He's just killed by, like, a, a wave of slime coming down the corridor <laughs> five minutes later. 
Perhaps before he's overwhelmed, he gets on the intercom and calls up and demands that they quick send lawyers guns and money or something. <laughs> All right, moving on to round three, special topics, Dalek. This week, uh, I have picked as our special topic, body count. One of the things that got me about the early Doctor Whos, Pertwee and, and Baker, was the life expectancy of somebody who wasn't the Doctor or a companion was not good. There are plenty of stories where the only reason there is, you know, it's like the tree that fell in the woods and there's nobody around to hear it. The only people around to hear this tree at the end are the doctor and his companion. Everybody else is pushing up daisies. It's a total, it's a, just a TPK, total party kill right across the board. And that always disturbed me on Doctor Who because after a while, I kind of realized that was the formula. And anytime anyone stepped on stage, I was like, oh, they're dead. Oh, who's going to die? They, oh, that guy's dead. Well, I hope they're not likable. Oh, they're likable. Oh, they're going to die. And I just, it made me very nervous as a kid watching early Doctor Who's because I was sort of terrified of who's going to buy it next. I can totally speak to this. Yes. Because it is part of my Doctor Who experience. So I grew up watching uh, Tom Baker and watched all of Tom Baker and then in through Peter Davison. And I was totally on board with Peter Davison. And then I kind of started to wobble in the sixth and seventh Doctor. And then I was getting into high school and girls and things like that. But... It was very memorable to me that during the Peter Davison era, the brutality and the murder rate soared. Yeah, we might be thinking of the same story. I think so. There's quite a few, actually, especially in um, the second and third Peter Davison seasons. There's Warriors of the Deep. That was the first one that came to my mind. Yeah. I think everyone except the Doctor and his companions die. Everyone who's not a Doctor or a companion dies in that story. Even the Merca. Even the Merca dies. Even the Merca dies. Then there's Resurrection of the Daleks. Again, nearly everyone is killed. Now, I did some research on this topic, and that came up. There were seven deaths in the first minute of the first episode of Resurrection of the Daleks. It may hold the uh, record for most deaths in one episode, which was 21 deaths in one episode. Wow. But, I mean, that was a theme in later Peter Davison stuff, too. And I I think it ties into his kind of overall likability and ineffectualness. Like, Peter Davison is a very likable doctor, uh, but he's a little bit beta male. So people just get killed around him. Arc of Infinity, a lot of people die. He he has a hesitancy uh, that other doctors don't have. Yeah, we talked about this when uh, we had Christian and Janie on uh, to talk about the caves of Androzani, too. Nearly every – well, everyone who is not a woman in caves of Androzani dies, and there's only two women in yeah. the caves of Androzani, so they, they happen to live. But that's that's typical for late Peter Davison stuff. It's very brutal, and it started to wear on me. And, you know, as a you know, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid or wh- whatever it was, that started to sort of irritate me about Doctor Who. Like, well, what's, what's it all for, right? Like, who are you saving if everyone on screen has been killed by the end of it? You're just escaping with Turlo and Tegan? As, eh, what's that about? There was a weird downbeat quality to a lot of Fifth Doctor stories. It carried over into Colin Baker, too. Well, yeah, then it started getting kind of mashed up with, like, more satirical kinds of elements, and it just got kind of weird for me, but, yeah. So, like, Vengeance on Veros has a considerable number of people being killed, and, and the doctors kind of flip about it. I would think there'd be some implied deaths in, I don't know, say, Spearhead from Space or Terror of the Autons or something, where there's clearly some small advance invading alien army that's just walking around blasting everyone. Well, certainly, uh, it, by the count I have listed for Spearhead is 13 dead bodies on screen, which is fairly high. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, thirteen's a pretty good number for a for a four episode one. That the first episode is just John Pertwee stealing clothes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Taking a shower and stealing clothes. Yeah. Yeah. There's something um, emotional having to do with whether it's on Earth or whether it's in a kind of isolated science fictional space too. I think that worked for me. In a weird way, like if you see a bunch of people getting killed on Earth. You think to yourself, oh, well, there's still a lot of other people left on Earth. 
that's just a small percentage of the people, and so the Doctor saved the rest of them. But if you see the base in uh, Warriors of the Deep, and every single person there was killed, including all of the Silurians and yeah. all of the Sea Devils. And Ingrid Pitt. And Ingrid Pitt, for God's sake. Yeah. It's like, wow, that was a total failure. Every single person in this little pocket universe has been killed. Now, I found this amazing article. I guess it was Imager or something where some guy went and quantified all the deaths in the New Who up through season, Series 9 and then proceeded to graph them. There's also deaths that are reversed, where by fixing the problem, deaths go away. Rory got killed like five One times. One of them was fa- Father's Day, where you yeah. know, in Series 1, where four billion people die, and then four people don't die. The empty child, where one person dies, that the child, and then by the end of it, he's back. I mean, literally... Nobody dies in that one. But the sort of crushed down statistics that I found really charming was that Christopher Eccleston, this is the, the, the average on-screen deaths per season for his season was 85 deaths for one season of Christopher Eccleston. Jeez. The Slovene killed a lot of people. The David Tennant was over his multiple seasons averaged out to 79.6 to the se- six over seven deaths per season. Uh, Matt Smith drops down to 16 deaths per season. Yeah, that's Stephen Moffat. Everyone lives. Capaldi bounces back up to 46.5 deaths per season. But even weirder was when they started throwing in the average deaths per companion per season. So Rose gets 67.5 deaths on average per season. Martha averages out at 85 deaths per season. Jeez. Amy and Rory only average out at 16.6 deaths per season. They spend a lot of Clara, time at home. Uh, Clara at 39.8 deaths per season. And the heavyweight murder champion, <laughs> where if this companion is around, you are not going to make it, is Donna with 104 deaths per season on average. <laughs> Well, to be fair, Pompeii exploded around her. Well, no, no. Those are off-screen deaths. I'm talking about <laughs> that you actually have somebody go, ugh, I'm dead, and fall over on screen. That's the kind of deaths I'm talking Man. about. I wouldn't have figured it would be Donna, but yeah. yeah. If you see the redhead, get out of it. <laughs> gingers are death. In fact, that sounds like a title, The Gingers of Death. The Gingers of Death. <laughs> So for round four, the randomizer, we're going to talk about the talons of Wang Chiang, one of the most famous Doctor Who adventures ever. Yeah. So you guys, there's been a lot said about talons of Wang Chiang over the many decades since it's been broadcast. So should we just start and talk about its racism? Yeah, we got, we got to get that out of the way. I mean... This is honestly one of my all-time favorite Doctor Who stories, and, like, every element of it is fantastic, except for the racism, which is just so central to everything that's going on. It's just buried deep in the the DNA uh, I of know. the story. It is a riff on your standard sex rumor yellow peril. I, I just listened to the commentary for it. I, I've seen it a bunch of times, so I wanted to watch the commentary for warming up for this. But there's several exchanges right at the very beginning where it's really obvious that they are trying to, or at least they intended to, satirize because everyone else in the the whole thing is a character. And it is another Victoriana Yellow Peril story. But it's also obvious in the commentary that they don't realize that they're not really satirizing it as much as they are just continuing it. I mean, there's, there's one line there where David Maloney... God help us. Oh, I remember. It, it, John Bennett was one of the other people there. It was the guy who played oh, Li, yeah. Li Shen Chang. Yep. And he comments, I can only assume with a straight face, saying that Bennett's makeup is so good that you'd never know that he was a white actor. No! And there's he's standing <laughs> next to one of the actual Asian actors in the shot at the same time. And there's there's so many other comments like that. That, that, that tongue was so far in his cheek it came out his ear. It's really <laughs> obvious that that might have been their intention, but they're really they just didn't get it enough to well, actually. Well, one of my little head cannon rationalization things I I did to my poor little adolescent white brain. <laughs> While watching this is, uh, there was a a magician roughly about this time period 
yes. Named Chung Ling Su, mm. who was a white guy who pretended to be Chinese. Mm-hmm. But he's mostly famous now because he died performing. He, he did a bullet catch act, and the wrong, the wrong gun was used, and he was actually shot on stage. And he yelled out, oh my God, I've been shot. And that's the first intelligible English words anyone could remember him saying in like wow. 10, 15 years what, or something. What year was that? I had to look this up. He died in 1918. Okay, so this is clearly part of the DNA of this story that Robert Holmes knows. And and Chung Ling Su, uh, I forget his real name. It was something really uninteresting, like William Anderson or something like that. Uh, That was his real name. Joshua Scrimshaw. Yeah. (laughs) But he was clearly ripping off another guy, the very similarly named Ching Ling Fu, who was an actual Chinese person who was also a stage magician at the time and had a very popular act. So anyway, in my head, I just kind of assumed, oh, they're satirizing this white guy who pretended to be Chinese yeah. and a stage magician. Well, when but was, I don't think they really when, were. When was, the, when was the World Exposition where Gilbert and Sullivan got the idea for the Mikado? This is about the, this time period, yeah. too. So there's the well, whole so Asian fascination going through British culture yeah. during the time that this, this story is set. Yeah, and, uh, and, and Professor Lightfoot... Like his family lived in China for a long time. They had oh, all the Chinese I've stuff. got a thing about that. Yeah, let's we'll return to yes, that. Uh, so, so for, Mac- for not positive reasons, uh, I'm sure. The Mikado is is what 1870 something like that. Uh, a little bit later, yeah. 1880 maybe. Uh, this is clearly post 1888 because they talk about Jack the Ripper. It's, yeah. it, this is not a satire. It's not a parody. This is Robert Holmes, who is almost certainly the best writer Doctor Who has ever had. But mm-hmm. he's also an unregenerate, old-fashioned Tory. His stuff always has questionable racist stuff in it. And it's usually... It, disguised enough with good writing that you kind of pass over it. But this is the same person who wrote The Two Doctors and had Mm -hmm. um, the second doctor calling uh, Jamie a barbarian. Some (laughs) amazingly out-of-character thing for the second doctor to say. Yeah, Yeah, and he got crueler and crueler as he grew older. Here, Robert Holmes is in a sort of benevolent mood, right? He's he's just pastiching 19th century Sherlock Holmes and Fu Manchu and Phantom of the Opera stuff, and he allows likable people like Jago and Lightfoot to survive in ways that he won't later on. Jago and Lightfoot, two of the best supporting characters ever in a Doctor Who story, and they happen to be together. And and, and they went on this. to do yeah. over 50 big finish yeah, audios together, so, which is wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. But I think a lot of the kind of scrabbling, like, oh, this was a parody, this was a pastiche. Uh, well, it, 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 it is a pastiche, but it's it's not a parody. It's, it's, it's me, not, it's it's not me a twisting my brain yeah. into a pretzel to try and assuage my white liberal guilt. <laughs> no, it, it totally is, yeah. I think so. And it, it's not just the Chinese either, although that's the main focus of it. There are stage Irishmen. Oh, Casey, you're a pixelated leprechaun. <laughs> and, and it's all, I think, part and parcel of the 19th century stagey characters. That oh, yeah, it's, there's it's the, very theatrical. There's the drooling old crone who shows the coppers the body in the river. <laughs> yes. they, they had a great, they had a great uh, anecdote about her in the commentary where she handed her false teeth to the director wrapped in a handkerchief because she didn't want them to fall in the river during the scene, and she thought that not, her not having her teeth would give her a lot of texture, which it certainly <laughs> did, but she didn't want her teeth in the town. That's hysterical. <laughs> you know, I, I think it's an exceptionally well-directed Doctor mm-hmm. Who story. It, the, the way everything is filmed at night, it's so classic, creepy, Victorian-era Here's some scary alleyway where you you know some cut purse is going to be lurking or something, and it's so darn atmospheric. Well, I yeah. just it's it's it's, it's, an, it's certainly an homage to the kind of things that Holmes would have been entertained by as a kid, or even a little bit, maybe even a little bit later, because I guess Holmes is what nineteen twenty six. And some of this stuff comes before he was born. He's born in 26. Mm -hmm. He would have read it as a kid. Yeah, but Sax Romer's turn of the century, Holmes is before, uh, Phantom of the Opera. That that stuff is all sort of predates him, but it was the kind of thing that maybe his parents would have been entertained by. Uh, One of the things they talked about uh, on the DVD recently was, okay, let's talk about Limehouse. Turns out Chinatown and Limehouse is like a street. Yeah. 
It is a tiny, tiny area, and it had ballooned up in the public imagination into this warren of twisted alleyways and streets and, you know, and <laughs> underground opium dens and parlors and gambling establishments and illegal distilleries that just was never there. It's an homage to a, you know, a fictional world that, granted, has as part of its fictional underpinnings scaring middle-class people with all these uh, unsavory foreigners coming onto the British shores and being un-British with their not being Britishness, it is absolutely a sort of uh, uh, racist hobgoblin myth mm. that was designed with very political purposes in mind. Um, Again, this is my my white liberal brain twisting itself into a pretzel, trying to justify all this. <laughs> I would like to think that there's some subversiveness into uh, Wang Chiang is actually some white guy from the future. It, it, that's what helps us escape being the Karloff mask of Fu Manchu. Yeah. When it comes to yellow peril films, uh, I think I, I was never a fan of those Chris Lee Fu Manchu films that got cranked out by Hammer. They were never opulent enough. They were never big enough and, and over the top enough. And Karloff's 1932 mask of Fu Manchu is so huge and so over the top and everything is so opulent and overdone mm -hmm. and half Peking opera, half German impressionist, you know, filmmaking at the same time that it's, um, it's enjoyable despite its delightful level of racism. Although watching it today, it just doesn't make Chinese people look bad. Those are not the people who look bad <laughs> watching that kind of yellow peril who looks bad are the guys behind the camera that thought this is going to be great. This is going to stand the test of time, you know, <laughs> uh, and no one will ever look at this cross-eyed in the future and go, what the, f <laughs> what were you thinking? You know, <laughs> but, um, because the bad guy turns out to be, yeah, what a white guy from the future who just at random landed in China. Right. Yeah. The fact that he comes down well, in China well, is he, he, a didn't he actually start in like Peking or something? Well, there's well, the no. Peking homunculus. Yeah, Mister mm -hmm. C. Well, that was a yeah. device. That was a device he picked up in the future and came back with him from possibly Reykjavik. It's hard to tell. Uh, the the whole thing is very scrambled. There's wonderful the Filipino army invading Reykjavik, yes. which is such <laughs> a wonderful. <laughs> and his name yeah, is uh, Magnus Greel, which yeah. is. Magnus is a, is a Latin, Norse name. Latin it. Yeah. He was the butcher of Brisbane. That just means he went down to Brisbane and killed a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. Didn't they say it was World War Five? Six. Six. World War Six. Yeah. Six. The geopolitical landscape could be quite a bit scrambled up by the time the, the 51st century mm -hmm. rolls around. So, Although but, with global uh, warming, the idea of two island countries being empirical at that point is pretty pretty low odds. Unless well, they they're going to be like Atlantis. Else. They had to go somewhere else because their islands were underwater. True. <laughs> One interesting little side thing I, I picked up here was um, they imply that Magnus Greel was the first human in history to travel through time. But that's been disproven multiple times. Who, that who been, says that, though? I is think it, he said it. One of the reasons that Greel is such a great villain yeah. is that he's so desperately pathetically he's really pathetic egotistical about his accomplishments like this is yeah. i created time travel even though it like blew my body apart mm -hmm. you know i created this machine <laughs> where i sucked the life out of young women he, he, he's like a really weirdly ineffective the doctor's uh, constantly running him down it's like no that was garbage that didn't yeah. lead to anything that's horrible I mean, you're a terrible he, person he, he, holds, he holds sway over his uh you know, Chinese minions just because of some... Well, because of Lee Sun Chang. Because of uh, Lee Sun Chang. Because he thinks he's a god. But he has like, no real leadership skills no. or anything. He's just, oh, no, that's why he's not usually hanging out with the Tong guys is because, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. Lee Sun Chang's the one who's the actually the charismatic, tempered, cautious, thoughtful villain. Greel is just a spaz. And that in of itself is sort of hilarious to me that the only reason it's working as well as it is, is because of Lee Sin Chang. Yeah. <laughs> 
So it's it's worth saying that this is one of the great Doctor Who stories yeah. of all it time. It really is. So maybe we should yeah. just say the things that we personally like about it, since you were saying at the beginning how hard it is to come up with anything new. Yeah. So I, I think one of the things that I do like about this, and, and what grabbed me when I saw it at the time, was that it's such a fantastic example of the kind of great cross-genre stuff that Doctor Who can do. Yeah. Because it's Yellow Peril, and it's Sherlock Holmes, and yeah. it's science fiction and fantasy, and it's all of that meshed together. And those are the really fun Doctor Who episodes, that are just these mashups of influences all thrown together into, into one kind of show. And this is the great period for that, too, because it's Philip Hinchcliffe and Bob Holmes, and they're throwing all of their 19th century stuff together. They're just, they're having a ball with it. There's a lot of just really weirdly charming things in it, like when Professor Lightfoot brings Leela to dinner, and she, like, literally just t- like sticks the knife and into the leg of lamb or something and just starts eating it, and he's like, oh, it, oh okay. And so he picks up the leg of lamb with his own hand, you know? And I thought that was kind of adorable. And what did Tom Baker say? She was raised by beavers or something in the wilderness? Or something? Yeah, she, she, the doctor she, she had was, some obviously crazy thing. No, she was said, found yeah. drifting down the Amazon in a hat box. Hat box. And, yeah. and Lightfoot's response is, a hat box? <laughs> it kills me every time. He immediately questions the buoyancy characteristics of the hat. <laughs> right. Really? Seriously? A hat box? And, and just uh, pretty much everything out of Henry Gordon Jago's mouth I just love. I mean, just like, I, I shall meet you at the crepuscular hour in the morning. Oh, okay. okay. It really makes me wonder how much of this that Jim Broadbent used for Moulin Rouge. I just want him to or oh, Tom Sager. Everything's yeah. going so well. It just, yeah, a Victorian owner of a theater, like, that's such a, a marvelous role where you can just chew the holy living crap out of everything. <laughs> yes. said, oh, wow. Did you want to get into Lightfoot's family in China, Pat? You said, <laughs> and we, and we passed that point. Uh, well, uh, this might be a good, <laughs> a, a good segue into the next section about how we understand history. But uh, Lightfoot's father was part of the punitive expedition to China in 1860. This is otherwise known as the Second Opium War. I don't think they called it that in uh, 1890, but yes, it is the Second Opium War. Yes, the British certainly did not call it that, uh, but uh, this was Lord Elgin of the Elgin Marbles fame. Uh, He destroyed the Summer Palace in uh, the Holy City. Looting. What they couldn't carry off, they destroyed. Uh, An area about the size of Delaware. I mean, the Summer Palace is a giant landscaped park, so the emperor never has to see reality and can just be shuttled back and forth between multiple palaces, all like, you know, made out of tofu or whatever strikes his fancy for the day, sort of emperor's private Disneyland. And the Brits absolutely destroy it, burn it to the ground. Take everything, and so when his when Lightfoot's house is full of stuff that's Chinese, I'm like, no, shit. it's full of stuff. Every British officer took everything they could. Yeah, and to go deeper into this, I mean, this is what the British Empire did. Essentially, the East India Company uh, was able to start growing opium in northern India for a long time, and then uh, British smugglers smuggled it into China. And uh, when the Chinese were like, hey, don't start addicting all of our people to opium, they went back to the British government and said, okay, well, why don't we start a war, which they did, and then they started one or two opium wars to open up ports so that they could just bring opium into China for decades. And um, It would be like if the DEA showed up and said, all right, we're confiscating this opium. And the cartels just mowed them down, marched an army to Washington, and burned down the Capitol building so they could continue selling cocaine in the United States. Yeah. That's basically what happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I can remember a time of, you know, when people would say the Opium Wars. Well, clearly, what do we know about Fu Manchu and all of his dastardly Saifan Tong guys? Clearly, they have opium dens, so the Opium Wars must have been about the British stopping Chinese opium from coming to England. I've heard that from people. This is typical British Empire stuff. You destroy another country, and then you blame the other country for doing to you what you just did to them. 
Uh, the but, Opium Wars were an abominable chapter in history. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're getting darker and darker here, yeah. uh, so it's probably time to wrap it up. But we, we haven't mentioned the giant rats yet. Oh, hey, let's talk about giant rats. This is I, I, much better than the Opium Wars. It was a bit like being threatened by Mr. Snuffleupagus. Yes. I love you so cute, Radio. The giant rat effects in this uh, story are, are famously brought up is like one of the worst yeah. monster effects ever in Doctor Who. They did say in the commentary that perhaps the rats should not have been so fluffy. <laughs> Maybe it could have been wet <laughs> or kind of greasy, have, but... but the special I, effects says that he, he made them up in an afternoon and was told specifically, no, this will never be filmed in direct light. So he's like, okay. They at least filmed it in comparative shadow. Compared to some other really crap-ass Doctor Who monsters I could name, like the Murka. It didn't hit me as hard this time as it did in previous years, maybe because I'm just more uh, used to it. I did have to look up the term money spider. <laughs> there's uh, a thing where they're like looking in the basement, and there's like a tarantula-sized spider or something. Jim was like, oh, it's, it's enormous. And the doctor just looks at it like, oh, that's just a money spider. Apparently, that's it's a, a term in the British Commonwealth for uh, super tiny spiders. They were called money spiders because there was this weird thing, like if you saw one, it was good luck and you would come into money or something. I was terrified you were going to introduce me to some new delightful form of Victorian racism, like, <laughs> oh, that's their term for Jews. Oh, thank you. <laughs> That's terrifyingly plausible. We almost we almost made it out. We that's, almost that, made it that's out. That's a perfect out for this. <laughs> no, no, no. Hold on, hold on. I do want to comment on things that I love about this episode. It's hard not to love a giant dragon statue with laser eyes yes. operated by an insane cyborg made out of a pig cerebellum, okay? That's pretty and great, yeah. That's kind of tough to say you know, no to, all right? <laughs> that, that, that Moonlight is a murderous, you know, ventriloquist <laughs> dummy, which are always creepy no matter what. But the other thing I love about this was if there's anybody, anybody you are going to take to the Victorian era, of course it's going to be Leela. Yeah, you this, know, where she's like, well, a house this big has to have defenses, right? You know, how do you keep the barbarians out of your yard? Leela was always one of my favorite characters, and mm -hmm. taking her into the genteel world of fainting female heroines who need rescuing. Okay, she splashes around in the sewer and her bloomers a little bit, but that's, you know, only because she substituted herself out for one of the victims to right. get into the right. bad guy's lair. But she's completely direct. There's no mucking around. She's like, hmm, stab him in the head. That'll fix it. Leela's great. The Peking homunculus comes for her and she just stabs it. When that doesn't work, she jumps on the table and leaps out a window, you know, right yes. to the glass pane. And I'm like, yes, that's what I want more of. Okay, now we come to the death zone. And today for the death zone, we went through the 1986, I believe. Yeah, 86 adventure game novel. Doctor Who and the Rebels Gamble, uh, which features the sixth Doctor, Harry, and for some bizarre reason, Harry Sullivan. Yep. Yeah. Going back to the American Civil War, and uh, we all took a crack at playing our way through this uh, book. It's uh, written by William H. Keith Jr. Who and wrote an enormous amount of stuff for Face It. The guy was a freaking mill. Um, he produced tons of material for Face It. I'm mostly familiar with the stuff for Traveler. I think he has over 75 published novels to his credit I, I, under I, his name and other names. I'm totally unfamiliar with him. I, that's really amazing. He's written a lot. He was part of early wargaming history, especially related to Doctor Who. I think that these are his first published novels. But here we are. It's the death zone. Yeah. All of us have played through this game. And choose your own adventure game. Yes. Basically, yeah. 
where you read and you like occasionally like make a decision and you turn to a different page or paragraph and sometimes you have to actually roll dice and uh, compare them to your stats. Even includes the possibility of regeneration if necessary. Last episode, as I'm sure you'll recall, Scott, we talked about Doctor Who and the Vortex Crystal, which had to do with Daleks and Chronovores and all those things. And Kelvin, of course, came out on top by being... I wound up having a a fantastic result where I... Fantastic adventure. Did everything right and kicked Ah. a whole bunch of butt and, yeah. I'm I'm eager to see how we all do this time. But to back up, the storyline here is that the Doctor, Perry, and Harry Sullivan... For some reason. And we'll talk about that. They are in the American Civil War because there's a time anomaly. A rebel soldier has gone forward into the future, learned about the Civil War, and then he and his psychiatrist, because, yeah, they have been kicked back into the past Mm -hmm. again. The psychiatrist is one of your companions, and the rebel soldier is out there screwing crap up. So your idea is like, oh, we're going to hang out with our very, very knowledgeable psychiatrist who also happens to be a Civil War reenactor. Because sure. And so now we are in the past trying to track down dude who's trying to screw up the past. So he's a Confederate soldier. And the first thing he's trying to do is to find the three cigars the famous three cigars dropped in a field outside of Frederick, Maryland. I suppose for the benefit of our few listeners who don't know about (laughs) Civil War history. No, 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 no. I I, I don't want to do this. And the reason I don't want to actually say the history is because this was a Ken Burns documentary disguised as a Doctor Who. Oh, here it comes. Dr. Jenner will not shut up about Civil War history down to unit badges, down to <laughs> what time of day, and it's this time of day, so that unit must be in this town at this time. And, you know, and, and it, it was that level of detail to where, you know, I was sick of it. I don't want to waste any time doing to our <laughs> listeners what William Keith did to me. My immediate takeaway was like this was a, a history lesson first and an adventure second. Or possibly third. It was certainly not a Doctor Who story. Yeah, yes. The first intervention in time is to rescue the Confederate battle plans that got left behind at Antietam and got discovered by the Yankees. So his first try to fix the Civil War is to get those plans and police them off the battlefield. Uh, His second attempt is to make sure Stonewall Jackson doesn't get gunned down by Confederate sentries by accident so that a more competent commander will be available for Gettysburg. I can't remember how else he was going to intervene at Gettysburg. Was he going to stop Pickett's charge or something? I didn't actually get that far. I I, I, I saved the world before Gettysburg. I uh, did, too. I had a crap-ass result with this. Kelvin, tell us what happened to you. Basically, you know, he finds the scared psychiatrist guy who's running around. You get arrested as spies. I I elected to escape to the trees, and I got shot in the back and regenerated. (laughs) Oh, I don't mean to laugh. But, But, yes. But, oh, Calvin, you got... And then we decided to go into Frederick, Maryland and look for Perry, because Perry has been taken away to be, quote, imprisoned, unquote, by some kindly old uh, Southern sympathizer lady. We run into Barbara Frecci. Sure. Who was uh, an old lady who who became kind of famous for defiantly waving uh, the Union flag when the Confederate Army marched by or something, so she became kind of an icon. Bless. I decide to check the fields nearby, and we run into Everett Marshall, who is the uh, southern soldier who uh, went through time and figured out the feature. I decide to come up with the brilliant idea of creating a fake envelope of cigars, and I try to trade those for Perry and stall to get him into the TARDIS uh, and and take him away from all this. I uh, screw up, fail a roll. I decide to, like, rustle the plans away from him. I fail that. I decide to surrender, like, by my time, and I screw that up. And it turns out I failed utterly. He throws the, the Battle of Gettysburg. And then there's, like, a little historical appendix of what happened. Basically, uh, South wins the Civil War. They win Independence. 
Texas becomes independent, yep. and California becomes independent. So there's like yep. four Americas, basically. And America's all balkanized and split up. And the North sides with Germany during World War One, And basically, America is like all uh, disunited, and it allows for some sort of communist ultimate taking over of the world in the 20th century. So I screwed up. Unless you're a Bolshevik. I was on the bubble with a lot of that stuff, too, Yeah. Uh, because the way that this book is structured, there is a lot of make this choice go on and make this choice and totally fail and die. So Scott, as our resident role-playing game expert, can probably talk to how the structure of the book is. I looked up the rule the, the rules on this, and I actually like you know tried to calculate various rules I had to make. I found the conditions for success brutally impossible roll a one on 2d6 or roll under one on 2d6 i I failed that automatically now what i don't remember a a role in this game that that would have a a chance of more than like one third of succeeding Mm -hmm. i'm really stunned by this Uh, i tried making decisions they were like well, what would the doctor do? And the first thing I kind of caught, thought of was Zarinius' the thing where he's like, I couldn't help but notice that there's some sort of terrible time thing happening, but I'm not going to tell you the companions and I'm going to go fishing. What? I mean, do you remember that right at the beginning? Where that's he's like, kind of Colin Bakery. And I was just like, okay, that seems dickish. I'll just keep being a dick. Uh, I followed your pattern pretty closely, except that I succeeded in that pickpocket role. I did go down there. Yeah. I did see the guy looking around for the cigars. I thought the first thing they do in a Doctor Who episode is go talk to him. That is structure of an episode, not role-playing game structure. Role-playing game structure, you go, I'm not talking to that guy. He's going to call the guards and shoot me, right? Where you observe him from a distance. No, I decided, well, it's a TV show. I got to go talk to the guy. And he calls the peelers, as it were, and we have to run for the woods. I get shot. I manage not to regenerate, but I'm still shot. And so I'm like, all right, let's try this again. So do the trick with the, the sticks, pretend it's the, the orders wrapped around the cigars. Uh, he brings Perry out. He discovers the diversion. The stall doesn't work. He makes it sit around at gunpoint. They find the cigars, brush up against him, manage the pickpocket roll. Ha-ha! And got out with the cigars. But it was literally something like where I, I either had to roll boxcars or snake eyes to make that work. Okay, it worked. Then did the Chancellorsville thing, and just out of a moment of irony thought, well, we've just been discovered in Confederate lines. Everyone's standing around. Stonewall Jackson is coming. You have a choice to either hold tight or run off through the woods. If we run off through the woods, the Confederates will shoot at us, and they'll shoot Stonewall Jackson by accident. And I thought, well, that would be ironic that we're actually the thing that gets Stonewall Jackson shot, and that the guy, Marshall, by yelling, shoot them, shoot them, they're Yankee spies— is actually precipitating event that gets Stonewall Jackson shot. I went with that option. He gets Stonewall Jackson shot. At that point, I talked him out of it. Uh, so I never got to Gettysburg. Again, managed to make a very hard roll on that one. And he's like, okay, I'll come back to the tortoise. So I got like result three or something. <laughs> yeah. Outcome, outcome five. But we did also, at the very beginning at Antietam, bumped into Lee. And that was painful. Let's come back to that, because uh, quickly, Scott, I followed your same trajectory, although I had to restart a little bit. First, I failed when Marshall took off with the plans, Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, okay, I guess the South won. I didn't realize that it was all contingent on exactly one decision, but all right. So I rewound a little bit. And then I was like, okay, let's rewind to get that good idea. And do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. I did that, and then I talked to Robert E. Lee, and we'll talk about that. And then uh, I hesitated a little bit, and so uh, Jackson was not killed, and then the world also was destroyed because of that. And then I rewound a little bit, and then I got to where Scott was. I convinced Marshall to give it all up. And we took him back to the 21st century. We went to outcome five, and everyone was fine. Those were our results. So I think better than yours, Kelvin. I had terrible results. I'm sorry to say. I played a little further along because I kind of wanted to know what happened at Gettysburg. I did, too. I I looked ahead. But at some point I realized I have other work to do. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I went back through, and I read all the outcomes, and I read all the, the history, and was even angrier than I was when I read the Robert E. Lee section. 
Yeah, okay, so first, that thing where you meet Robert E. Lee, and he is bathed in a glow. It's like, oh, look at this, this amazing man. And so everywhere, all just, oh, you, always, we might as well genuflect in front of him, because, he's, oh, look he's always, Robert Lee is always standing like somebody's painting his portrait. That got tiresome, that, that whole image of the noble aristocrat who had to betray America because he loved old Virginia so much. Can we also mention there are no black people in this book at all? Whatever. Not a single person. There's a mention of of when the South wins, slavery dies a natural death by 1882. Which, by the way, probably not. uh, Considering that slavery doesn't die out in Brazil until 1889. Um, if they won in 1863, that is a testimony to the superiority of the white race. And they, just like they said in the Cornerstone speech, there is no way they're manumitting their slaves during the 19th century. Well, that was one of the things that annoyed me the most in the alt history. Each historical output is like, okay, the Union Army is crushed. Meade's forced to surrender the Army of the Potomac. Lee then goes on the offensive, takes Washington the most heavily fortified city in the world. And as we know, when attacking fortifications, the attacker always, always, always has the advantage, right? (laughs) So they're just going to sweep in there with Jeb Stewart's cavalry, no problem. And Lincoln is going to, in in every situation, Lincoln abdicates and flees the capital. Because that's what he's what? about. Lincoln is always about, I'm just going to give up at the first opportunity and flee. What? All right, get ready with the buzzer. What the f***? Okay? <laughs> what the f***? Abraham Lincoln abdicates? This is this would not be the first time the Capitol got burned down, okay? And yeah. Adams didn't abdicate. He just moved his command to Philadelphia and then retook the place because what are the Rebs going to do? Occupy Washington? Sure. Stay in Washington all you want. We'll just run the army down south like Uncle Billy uh, Sherman and burn your whole country to the ground. Please, keep Washington. I liked the thing, too, that uh, I don't know if you read this far in the book, but when the rebels failed at Gettysburg, Grant just collapsed at Vicksburg, which was happening at the same time. There was like, oh, uh, this rebel victory at Gettysburg gave heart to the rebels at Vicksburg, and so they just pushed off Grant, and he gave up the siege, which he'd been doing for what? uh, How many months at that point? I don't remember, right? It was like 90-day siege of Vicksburg. And yeah, he's just going to pack his kit. I noticed they don't mention the part where Bobby Lee's army picked up every Negro freedman they could find as they marched through Pennsylvania and immediately declared them all contraband and immediately made them slaves, whether they were escaped slaves or not. Yeah, the doctor's not hanging out with Negro freedmen in Pennsylvania as they have to flee from their homesteads that they had for a generation or so because Southern slavers are coming to them, and he's not helping them to go to the North. Yeah, 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 exactly. This book smells of its age. Uh, An age age when the South was still getting an enormous amount of deference. Well, it's 1986, so to be fair, not that I want to be fair to it necessarily, but it's it's two years before Eric Foner's big book on Reconstruction, 1988. Uh, Keith, in this book, calls Reconstruction um, economic and political opportunism of the Reconstruction, which is what I was taught as a young person, and that's garbage, and that's awful. I mean, that was a very common depiction of of, of Lee yeah. for yes. my whole yes. life. Was like he was this super honorable guy who just picked a but bad side. Fork. Now, this is also four years before Ken Burns' Civil War. Yep. And I will point out that that series, although it doesn't go nearly as hard on the South as it could was treated as if it was the worst kind of revisionist history, that it was an attack on Southern honor. It was hated when it came out because it just started to speak some of the uh, realities of what was Dixie. 
And uh, so those aspects of it drove me out of my tree. Absolutely. I find it amusing that if the South wins, the world ends in communist domination. It's very 80s that way. This is the guy who wrote Twilight 2000, which was a World War III role-playing game. Uh And that's one of the things that, that strikes me about Doctor Who is that they're usually best when they're not doing that twee thing of the Doctor being involved with changing history or setting history right. If you go into the past, it's cool to have a story where there's a historical thing happening and the doctor, it's in the background. Like Pompeii's blowing up or he's in Victorian times. That's fine. But suddenly the doctor appears in Bastogne and turns out to be the guy who wrote the word nuts as the response to the German demand for surrender. I don't want that to happen. I do kind of dislike it when the doctor is that integral to the the entire existence of humanity. Yeah. Future stuff was cool, but he says, I was with the Filipino army when they took Reykjavik. I'm like, yeah, that's what I want to hear. I want to hear something totally impossible and implausible that will not offend my my knowledge of events. All right, so... We're going to wrap it up. Yeah, I did not enjoy this game. (laughs) So the Death Zone fellows, who wins? Well, clearly the South did. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently they lost the war but won the peace. But Kelvin, you failed at this book. Oh, absolutely. Scott and I both succeeded, I think. The Vortex Crystal is a much better story and a much better game. And I don't think I'm saying that just because I beat it. But But honestly, I think... William Keith defeated all of us because we're never going to get that time back. Well, that wraps up another one, folks. Uh, this has been the the special time anomaly ranting about the Civil War <laughs> and the Opium Wars edition of Get Off My World. Uh, we'll be back again soon. And just for the record, I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And I'm Scott. And I'm Tony. And we're saying... I'll tell you guys, because yeah. you're, I, I know, burning to understand this, but this yes. won't make it on the podcast. It's funnier it's, when you explain it. It's because Keegan Joyce's character is named Starkey. Uh, and so I thought that it could be called Starkey's Machine. Yeah. Dude, no! Ah. <laughs> no, that's not even close. It's not even close. It's Sharky's machine, for Christ's that's sake. Not even, that's not quite a... It's one letter off. It's not quite a joke so much as... A pun? <laughs> Why um, don't you just make another Beatles joke? Because Ray Starkey was Ringo's real name. Were you Were huh. you suffering from uh, the flu at the time? But <laughs> canine's a machine, and Starkey is his master.